There's a monastery in Japan. Uh, which has the following sign as you approach the entrance. It says, Hey there, what are you gawking at? Haven't you figured out yet that it's about you? Which is a less than refined way of saying that in order to understand the Buddha's teaching, You have to understand your own mind. You have to understand yourself. Um, put another way, you can't understand the Buddha's teaching in any significant way without understanding yourself. And it seems those who've been practicing for a while, you probably know that. And yet it's very difficult for us humans to learn that lesson. Now. Uh, what the Buddha is saying is not that you just sit as an atomized, isolated individual and just keep looking at your mind, uh, because this kind of self-understanding or self-knowing, I like that term because it's a verb, uh, some of it that's quite extraordinary happens on the cushion. But it's by no means reserved to the cushion. That is, self-knowing is something that uh, can be, be learned in action, whatever you do. Um, the Buddha is sometimes called a great physician, and healing uh, the suffering of human beings. Uh, he's also, I think you could also call him a great educator. And to paraphrase his words, I would, that's how I see it, one way to characterize what he's trying to accomplish is uh, human race, you don't really know how to live. Uh, let me give you a few hints. We have to learn how to live. Now, at the time of the Buddha, people were destroying themselves and suffering just as much as now. Now, of course, the amount of power released by the uh, amazing discoveries of science and technology uh, I don't have to emphasize this. I think you all know it. Uh, is immense and very, very dangerous. Uh, so what's, what is this? What's missing? Is it hopeless? I don't know. There's some views that, the human, that we can change radically. It's the next step in evolution where we begin to understand ourselves. We begin to learn how to live by stop gawking at other things and take a look at what we need to take a look at. Uh, and then there's another view, which perhaps the evidence supports up until now, is that, look, this is the curriculum here on planet Earth. Uh, no one's ever going to get it. That's why you were born here. And the practice is at least enabling you to get free, for you to suffer less, for the people in your life to suffer less. I don't know. I don't know what's true. The second view has a lot of evidence in back of it, thousands of years. We don't seem to have learned how to live with each other. Uh, so much emphasis on uh, technological scientific advancement, uh, which has amassed amazing 
um, gifts for us humans to take advantage of. The computer and all that that's becoming just being the most recent. And yet with all our material advance and scientific brilliance, um, it seems like we can't enjoy our opulence, that we have so much. So, and people who don't have it are suffering as well, thinking there's something wrong. If they'd only have what we have, then they'd be okay. So it does seem like the old refrain, if you've been in Buddhist circles, and I know some of you are rather new to this, you hear it over and over again, greed, hatred, and delusion. The tendency of the mind to want things, the tendency of the mind not to want things. And the root out of which it all comes is uh, delusion or confusion or ignorance, but not ignorance of information. If that were the issue, we're already well informed even without computers. Uh, so learn how to live. To me, that seems to be right on the target. That meditation is designed to help us learn how to live. Uh, it's not just sitting on a cushion and having wonderful experiences, which do come and go. But most of us, perhaps all human beings, spend most of their life off the cushion. So it's about learning. I would say it's largely about learning. Uh, and what the Buddha is, uh, as an educator, is attempting to accomplish is to help us unlearn so many ways of living that don't seem to work, that produce suffering again and again and again, generation after generation. And there is an optimistic statement that human energy directed properly uh, can lead to well-being, freedom, that we're not directing the immense brilliance that we have available. The brain is quite brilliant. Look at what it can do. But it doesn't seem to be directed towards who we are. And how we live and who we are are inseparable. Self-knowing and learning how to live, I don't see how you can separate it. Self-knowing is the beginnings of wisdom. How can you get free if you don't know yourself? It makes no sense. How can you begin to suffer less if you don't understand yourself? Uh, it's a verb, self-knowing, as I use it, I prefer it, rather than self-knowledge, which is a customary term, but often meaning what I'm saying. Uh, knowledge is something that you accumulate. Uh, fill up libraries and uh, computers and everything with knowledge. Uh, the learning I'm talking about happens in the active present, and I would call it understanding. Knowledge has its place, definitely. All kinds of knowledge, including uh, spiritual knowledge. Uh, but it's knowledge. It's about something. It may be brilliant. It may be inspiring. It may uh, give us a sense of direction that we never would have without it. And I would say it certainly does. And yet, it isn't the understanding that changes and transforms our life. That understanding has to come from deep inside. And each one of us has to tap it and then uh, live our life and in the fire of living find out uh, what we need to learn as we live and learn. 
So to me, learning is uh, essential here, but it's a different kind of learning. Uh, learning is valued, but it's mostly learning about knowledge or technical skills, and more and more it seems to be learn those things that will get you a good job. I'm not against us having good jobs. But uh, you don't have parents wanting their children to grow up understanding themselves. You do have parents wanting their children to grow up and get into MIT. It's a wonderful institution. I live not far from it. Many extraordinary people come through there and stay there. But it doesn't necessarily lead to fulfillment, to freedom, to awakening. The emphasis is different. The energy is being directed somewhere else. And what Dharma is saying is to turn that around, turn that energy and start to apply at least some of it to understanding how you live. Um, I feel very grateful to my first teacher, who was Krishnamurti, uh, an Indian gentleman, J. Krishnamurti. Many of you know the name, at least. I met him more than 35 years ago. Didn't have a clue as to who he was. He came to a, a university uh, in Massachusetts, Brandeis University. Uh, I was teaching there at the time. And one of my colleagues had heard him in, um, in New York City at the New School for Social Research. And he said to me, Larry, I couldn't understand a word this guy was saying, but I know it's what you're looking for. <laughs> and I, I didn't want to go. <clears throat> I, said, oh, I, I had other things that I wanted to He insisted. So I went. One of the smartest things I ever did. I don't know if it was smart. I just did it. Uh, because no one was interested in what he had to say. He was invited to the university for 10 days. They had a, a great person film series. And uh, every year a different person was invited. And talks were filmed and exchanges and so forth. And in this case, uh, one professor who I knew... I got him invited, but no one else heard of him or cared. So there were very few people attending anything he did, <clears throat> which was my good fortune. So we took long walks, and I was with him as much as I could. And then the 10 days passed. And I wanted some specific meditation instruction, something like breathe in, breathe out, or something what we're getting here. And he had no interest. He didn't give it to me. All he said was, we were going our separate ways. He said, um, start paying attention as to how you actually live. How do you actually live? He emphasized actually. Not how you think you live. Not how you should live. How do you actually live from moment to moment? Get to know your motives. Get to see why you do this and why you do, you do that. Pay attention. Learn the consequences of your actions. Okay. He also said, put your house in order. And I thought, does he know how messy my apartment is? Uh, and I questioned him on that, and he said, yeah, that's true. Fix up your house. But that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, so that got me started. And one thing led to another, and I've been very involved in Buddha Dharma for many, many years never stopped seeing him all along, even though he's non-sectarian, very against all schools of thought and religions and all that stuff. 
Never held it against me. He was quite wonderful. Um, but I had a head start. Well, it's a head start. Depends on where, where how you see it. Uh, my introduction to this was a view of practice as being the same as life. That is, living, to put a frame around what we're doing, living was prior to any of the invention of any of these forms, no matter how beautiful they are. Buddha Dharma, sitting meditation, Dzogchen, Vipassana, Shikantazas, you tell me, any of the, uh, there's something prior to that, it's called life. And it was a view towards being a whole person. And so that he felt that meditation was the crown jewel, but what he considered meditation, uh, although it includes sitting, of course, it, the emphasis was on just there's no place for it not to happen. So that's been natural for me for a long time. And then when I got into uh, formal uh, Buddhist training, some years in, in Zen, in Korea, Japan, here, and then Vipassana for many years, Everyone agrees that daily life is part of practice, the precepts are to help us. Um, but I feel we need help. For one thing, this particular lineage, and I say that broadly, not particularly Burmese or Thai or, let's say, uh, the Buddhist approach to living that I know, uh, it's uneven. Some are definitely more at home in the world than others, but the particular one that inspired us here is monastic, a very strict monastic approach. And they have a daily life. Everyone has a daily life. How can you not have a daily life? People talk, say, when I go back, go back to the real world, you know, my daily life, uh, well, what is this, a fake world? Uh, there's just life. There's no place to get out of it. Wherever you go, there you are again. That's Buckaroo Banzai. I know you think it's John Cabot's in, but Buckaroo Banzai in a terrible movie said it first. <laughs> I walked out after about 20 minutes, but I never forgot that line. Uh, is sitting and retreats like this precious? Of course, I've devoted a good part of my life to it. If you fixate on it and think that this is it, I, ho I hope you're not disappointed. And often, it's quite easy for that to happen, especially if you take to the sitting. You can get very happy on that little cushion or your chair or your bench. Some of you are newer may not believe it. Perhaps you're at your first retreat, and your mind is already on going home. Uh, in fact, what we consider a successful, sometimes people call up. They don't seem to do it anymore in the old days here. Uh, how's X doing? You say, oh, terrific. And you say, they're still here. That was a sign of success. Our bar is set very low. <laughs> show up. And it's, but that's a lot of it, is to show up. Um, my own feeling, and I don't feel I'm so, this is so spectacularly creative or original, it's not original at all, but it seems necessary in this time period. It seems like lay people in the modern West, at least, and certainly in our culture, um, are the ones who have the most energy to really do this, and some very, very seriously, without 
leaving family life, work life, student life, whatever your life is. We don't want to become monks and nuns. Some do. Now, I don't know if this pa a pattern will obtain or it will eventually become what it has, for the most part, become throughout Asia, that it, it monastic primarily, with certainly lay people uh, participating and benefiting. I don't know. But right now, we need a practice that is appropriate for what our life is. I know some of you, you get to come to this retreat once a year, or some retreat like this, maybe twice a year. You sit every day, an hour in the morning, an hour, uh, but the rest of your life is real. And so we need a practice that takes that into account, that does not neglect the sitting, because sitting has something rather unique to offer, precisely because it's such a simplified, uh, ingenious invention of the human mind to uh, temporarily suspend all the things that make life so difficult. Relationship, work, health, everything, jobs. Uh, you sit on the cushion, you're not eating, you're not on the phone, you don't have your cell phone, you don't have your TV, you don't have your computer. Uh, you're, you're stuck with yourself. Now even there we're brilliant at avoiding ourselves brilliant, especially when we find out that it's about us. And then we say, okay, us is fine as long as I stay with the breath. I like that. Sure, because if you get good at that, uh, then you can feel very, very good as you become absorbed in the breathing, and the rest has not changed all that much. If you were a fool, you're now a calm fool. Yet, uh, we, we need something, it seems, most of us need something to help us. Um, and th this practice, as those of you who are new will find out in a little while, that it's not just about the breathing in an exclusive way, but it includes attending to everything that we call my life. That's where the learning, I would suggest, uh, is going on. And I thought Doug laid it all out last night. Uh, the, the retreat, our retreats emphasize what is usually talked about when you go home, how to integrate being here with what happens when you get home. So uh, why are we talking about uh, being mindful while dressing, going to the bathroom? You know, it's said in the books to be mindful all the time, but then it's just dropped. We start our groups tomorrow. You might be asked, well, what's your yogi job? How's it going? If you don't ask people about how their practice is going off the cushion here, the message is very clear. It isn't that important. The real thing is our boss sitting up there, if not in cross-legged, at least in a chair or bench somehow. Uh, and yet what I feel is important to convey, because it's difficult, is that uh, life is what is, is the materials that we practice with our life. Without uh, what tends to happen if you emphasize daily life, then people neglect sitting. They think, those, especially those of you who don't like it so much, or maybe I have a hard time concentrating. He says, oh, just pay attention to uh, eating dinner. I can do that. Great. What a relief. 
and suddenly their sitting becomes five minutes a day, then three minutes, then forget about it. They can't, don't even know where their nostrils are, let alone the breath. So how to maintain the value of contemplative life in the narrow sense of uh, sitting, of protected environments like this, uh, of everything, the forms that uh, have been going on for thousands of years and that have proven themselves to be useful, while at the same time not setting that up in such a way that it is it, it is so special that, yeah, mindfulness in daily life, but you can't tell me uh, that vacuuming and tying my shoelaces is as important as sitting. Uh, uh, come on, who are you kidding? Well, I'm not going to try and convince you. Actually, I am, but it's up to you to decide, but I'm going to, we're going to move in that direction a bit, more than a bit. So my feeling is, unless we learn how to live, because we're not monks or nuns, we don't live in caves or the forest, uh, we all have a life of some kind. And there is resistance to getting back to the daily life piece. I, I hear it. People tell me oh, for years. I just uh, keep going. Uh, here's a typical scenario. We've gotten wounded in relationship, speaking in general. If there's anyone here who's never gotten wounded in relationship, I'm happy for you. But most of us, this is uh, what is called in the military, this is a, uh, a battlefield tent. You know, this is, uh, uh, it's, in, it's in combat. And uh, people, it's very close to where combat is. And in warfare, this goes on. There are medics there, and people are brought into this tent, and if possible, fixed up and then sent back into combat. But that's not what people want. They want to crawl into the tent and uh, not have to go back to that. Those mean people out there were trying to kill them. Uh, when we come here, for example, take jobs. Some of you have perhaps gotten jobs that you don't like and don't want. I hope so. But only if you take that on and see that it's helping you to free yourself. Uh, living on a, life on a retreat is uh, it's designed to, to set us free. Life on a, on a retreat exists to set us free. Of course, you could say life is like that if you uh, generalize and take that attitude towards living where you're open and sensitive to everything that happens and are willing to learn from what happens. But right now we're here, and this is a beautiful place to learn how to learn. It's safe. It's the sanctuary that Doug got at last night. Granted, sometimes it's not that safe, but if, if there's a problem, it's not with someone else. It's what's going on inside of us. We're intimidated by ourselves. We're frightened of what's inside ourselves. But there's support. We're all here. Uh, that's the, the, the beauty of the Sangha. And so to take advantage of the intensive part of sitting, but also no small activity is trivial, none. Um, let's, uh, a few words about this self-knowing stuff, because it's at the core, core of what the Buddha is talking about. 
Self-knowing is a verb. It means that uh, as we live out our life, life impinges upon us and stimulates a reaction for all of us. What's being suggested here is that we learn from those reactions. Um, that in that sense, life is a great teacher. But only uh, if they're students to learn from what this impingement brings up in us. In that sense, daily life is a very rich source of learning. To me, learning, you often hear that training as a word in, in Dharma circles. Granted, some of what we do is, is like, I think training is a good word for it. It's a bit like drill, doing something over and over and over and over again. Uh, necessary, it seems. But there's something I, that we could call learning. It's not to exclude training. That's a little different. It doesn't necessarily have to do with getting up at the same time every day, coming to each sitting, as valuable as that is. It has to do with a, a commitment to, the, to be sensitive to your experience and to learn from that experience, to understand that that's real practice and that the materials that make up your life are perfect materials for you to practice with. Perfect. Um, there have been a number of editorials in the New York Times by a writer named Thomas Friedman. Uh, and he's uh, lately big on learning, and I've been reading them and found them very interesting and uh, helpful, and I agree with them. But he's, he, he's talking about learning how to learn, and he's suggesting he's not talking about Dharma in the sense of inner learning so much, although it's implicated in everything we do. What he's talking about is as the world changes so quickly and is going to continue changing quickly, a survival skill for all of us is the ability to learn how to learn and how to learn how to love learning. But what he's talking about is certain technical skills are outmoded. He talks about himself. His graduate school training is not, a, not all that helpful anymore. He had to learn all kinds of new things for him to be do the job he's doing, how to learn new language skills and so forth. And what he's talking, he mainly is talking, of course, about job skills. That uh, it's going to be routine that what we're doing is no longer necessary because something else has come along. And those people who have that quality of mind, that they can shift, shift gears, can learn how to learn, and can develop this ability to love, to love learning, which I think exists for all of us when we begin as children. What happened to it? We could blame society, we could blame the school system, or at least elements of it and so forth. But if, uh, if you watch children, uh, they take great joy in learning the smallest thing. And even all of us, when we learn something, uh, doesn't it give you energy and make you feel good? Okay, but what Tom Friedman is talking about is external. Granted, the mind is always part of everything. But I felt like he's right. But the important kind of learning that has to now enter into the modern world is learning to learn and loving to learn, but about ourselves. So it, it isn't this kind of grim, like when you hear... Uh, Doug last night and myself now and others uh, be mindful in everything you do and uh, sometimes you know you're working hard in here and then 
You just want to goof off inside when you get into the hall, you know, in the kitchen. I don't want to watch, you know, eating this, taste all this. Just let me eat my meal, enjoy in peace. Just stay out of my head. That suggests that the attitude is very grim, joyless. That's about attaining something rather than enjoying the process itself. The kind of learning I'm talking about it's the act, the process of learning is what's joyful. And within Dharma circles, there are different styles of practice. Some put a goal ahead of us, something that we're going to get to that's outside of the activity we're engaged in, called awakening, enlightenment, first stage, second stage, or whatever. It's in all the traditions, different language. There's another style, another approach, which... Uh, not, they all have a bit of each other, but which obviously I favor, which is um, there's just now. And uh, liberation is now. It's not, we're practicing freedom. We're practicing liberation. And there's a tendency of the mind to think of it as somewhere down the road, if I just keep doing this stuff, sit and walk enough, come to enough retreats, don't lie, don't steal, don't ch- etc. Uh, that then I will be free. Someday, it'll come down like from heaven or something. And there are breakthroughs in practice. Some of you know it. It it just comes. You you can't make it happen. Suddenly, a big chunk of uh, of ignorance falls away, and you see something so clearly, and your life is changed forever after from that. There's more to go. But most of it is blue-collar work. Sorry. It's day in, day out, paying attention. And if we don't learn to enjoy the process, uh, then you get into that achieving mind, the, the disease of becoming. The Buddha speaks quite eloquently about that in terms of craving and attachment, what caused suffering, psychological suffering. First and second noble truth. If you're new... Read the Four Noble Truths. All Buddhist schools agree on that. Craving and attachment, suffering. And one of the main kinds of craving is craving to become. Somehow, whoever we are right now isn't good enough. There's someone better waiting for us to become. Somehow, the house we live could be better, the partner we're with or could be better. If we're single, we want to be with someone. If we're with someone, we want to get out. You know, There's always, even in meditation, uh, the mind gets very peaceful. Oh, wonderful, this is what they're talking about. Ah! Oh, something even better is going to come now. Uh, and that's it. You just killed it. There's nothing next. Nothing next. It's all about, there's just now. Everything else is an imagining about the future, uh, a, a bringing up memory, which, and it's all happening now. When we envision the future, it's happening now. The memories are happening. The memories are over, never to be relived again, except in a certain way. Virtual time rather than real time. Real time is now. That's the only real time. And even there, we can so conceptualize now that we're not in touch with it. Okay. Um, Let me give you a... Again, a, a teaching that tries in a, 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 if you're new to this kind of talk, certain kinds of Dharma talk, 
may not make sense. It may take you a while to see that it makes a great deal of sense. Uh, Kuro Sawaki, uh, uh, Roshi was a great Japanese master, and uh, one of his main disciples, a man named Uchiyama Roshi, uh, described Uchiyama was a very shy, uh, kind of fragile, how he describes himself, and I know people who've practiced with him, um, withdrawn, uh, somewhat timid person, and Kodo Sawaki Roshi, who was his mentor, was very bold and brave and uh, charismatic and so forth. And he said when he was a young monk, he took a walk with him on the grounds. And he said, if I keep meditating, uh, keep that up seriously, will I become as confident and uh, strong as you? And Sawaki answered, uh, no, uh, uh, it has nothing to do with meditation. I was just born this way. Okay. Uh, on another occasion, uh, he talked about, he was questioned, and he said that when he died, he wanted his ashes to wherever they were put to have the following inscription. Here lies the remains of Sawaki Roshi, wasted his entire life on the cushion. <laughs> or, challenged again, uh, about the value of all this, and he said, um, "This uh, sitting, pra this all this meditation, sitting practice is absolutely useless to the person who is challenging him." He says, "But if you don't do this useless thing thoroughly, your life will be useless." <laughs> Makes sense out of that one. It actually is sensible. But what he was trying to do, in a way, is medicine for the for the disease of becoming all the time. Somehow, the present is pale compared to what might be in the future. Of course, sometimes we see the future as much worse. But in Dharma practice, whatever your present is, maybe it's lackluster in a given moment, just, you know, same old stuff, uh, it's far more valuable and precious than your best fantasy about what you think the future is going to bring. That's not, that's not true. It's just an imagining. If you stay with what's happening, that takes you somewhere. The whole practice is an in, the, the, the part that's different. It's an interior journey. And learning how to be with what is, which is this, that Doug was getting at. So right now, you have a this and I have one. Some of my this is it's hot. Then other this is check the time. You're starting to rant and rave too much. So what we would like to emphasize is that you approach every activity as if it's really sincere and important practice. But can you do it in a light way uh, to enjoy the process of getting to know yourself firsthand, directly? The kind, uh, what, what I'd like to, this can be called intimacy, intimacy of practice. Uh, there are many ways to characterize our practice. One of the best is that it's about intimacy. Master Dogen, a very great meditation master, was asked, uh, what is all this enlightenment uh, awakening stuff about? And he said, to be intimate with all things. Okay, what is intimacy and all things? Literally true. 
first and foremost, of course, is to be intimate with ourselves. What does that mean? Uh, we'll be exploring that, but I'd like to get us started. Hmm, five minutes. Okay. Um, let's take a humble activity. Let's start with work, your yogi job. I'm just going to pick some job, vacuuming. Um, it's been known to happen that the person who draws the look of the drawer gives them vacuuming, and they hate to vacuum. Uh, maybe some people like it. Uh, I've never met one, but there may be some out there. Oh, I think Matthew likes it. I saw him, the happy vacuumer once, you know. <laughs> so let's say you draw vacuuming, and so what would intimacy of practice mean here? Uh, intimacy as used here does not mean uh, you try to crawl inside the vacuum cleaner. It does not mean you hold on to the vacuum cleaner and caress it. It means you vacuum. Okay, so well, what's so special about that? Well, intimacy means a practice is when there's no separation. Uh, if you take a look, you'll see that we separate ourselves a great deal. When we're here, we're thinking about there. When we're there, we're thinking about here. Somehow, we're always somewhere else. And so, let's take this hypothetical person who really doesn't like to vacuum. And they've come to the retreat with a very eager and optimistic and just, oh, seven days out in the beautiful country. They've been here before. And uh, each retreat is different. There are retreats where you pick your job. Uh, and people come hours early to get the, the lightest job. Uh, okay, you understand. Okay, so let's, we're taking this hypothetical yogi who really doesn't like the vacuum, in fact, hates it. And then they, they find out yogi job, vacuuming. Great. And they have a wonderful sitting right before, and then it's time for their first yogi job. Now, I didn't make all this up. I've gotten it over the years like a composite of different miserable yogis vacuuming. <laughs> I've put all their life story together. And so one quite common, to the point of being boring, story comes up over and over again. I hated vacuuming when I was a kid, and, and my wife makes me vacuum sometime. I hated it then, I hate it now. And I just had a great sitting, and I came out here to have a retreat. Uh, I work hard all week long, and I got vacuuming, and I hate that. Uh, this, is, this actually comes up. I've had conversations. So I understand, but practice would be to learn how to uh, be intimate with vacuuming. Okay. Uh, typically, the person can't at first. And what they do is um, make themselves do it. The job gets done. The carpet is spotless. The body is tense. The mind is thinking about all kinds of other things. There's resentment. There's bringing up, I'm not denying that uh, things they've been, a person has been wounded in the past. Old memories of how we were forced to do this and we hate doing it and try to get someone else always to do it for us. And uh, here I am stuck with it and they call this wisdom and dharma. And, 
uh, and I just had a great sitting, and it's completely spoiled. And uh, and then there's hatred towards me or whoever's teaching. But little by little, the practice is gentle. Actually, it's not muscular. Is you just you start vacuuming, and what you do is you begin to notice the mind. And you see self-knowing in action. That is, learning how to live, uh, a lot of it comes in the cushion. You learn some valuable things by sitting with yourself. But uh, daily life is not less rich. And many things, I, in my own uh, discoveries, have been long, long retreats, six and nine months in silence. And I thought, completely cleaned out. I'm terrific. I'm home free. Right. Uh, all it takes is when you come home, someone looks at you the wrong way, and it's as if you never sat in your life. Okay, so the practice would be you start where you are. It's not that you force yourself to love vacuuming and do an impersonation of the, the happy, intimate yogi. Is that you vacuum, but you become sensitive to what's happening. And as you're vacuuming, you can see the mind uh, already thinking about the walk it's going to take. Uh, it's looking about anything. It just doesn't want to be doing this. But you, it's not that you repress it or deny it or anything of that sort or cope with it or put up with it or even try to accept it. That's a common phrase I hear now. Well, we, we just accept it. It's on the way, but I'm not talking about accepting, which is somehow a subtle way of talking yourself into something. What I'm talking about is seeing it. And we're learning the art of pure observation. Can you see uh, intimacy here? Me, intimacy of practice is not possible unless the seeing is there. That's why we spend so much time, the word mindfulness, awareness, attention, whatever language you like. That's the key to freedom, is the art of seeing. Because it's out of the seeing that freedom comes through. Wisdom grows out of clear seeing when we see how we're actually living from moment to moment. And so you begin to see separation. You begin to see the price you're paying of uh, struggling with the vacuum cleaner, uh, the, what it does to the body, the kinds of feelings that you're living with. You don't banish them. You don't punish them. You just see it. And you allow yourself to be intimate with the price you're paying for your attachment to what you can do and what you can't do. And I don't mean skills. Some, you know, some people can't do certain skills. Uh, you don't want to. And with practice, it happens. Uh, the separation starts to uh, dissipate itself. And maybe it's a moment here, a moment there. And that you're, you're vacuuming. There's just vacuuming. And it's okay. I'm not saying it's, the, it's great. But here's one of the keys. I would say maybe the key. Granted, you have the faith to go along with all this. Some would say stupid, stupidity, but uh, the next time we, we, we'll go into this a bit more. Um, in certain monasteries, uh, certain ones I practice, and it's not, not that unusual, uh, this is the attitude of everything needs to be done carefully. And whether you like it or you don't like it, you learn how to do it. There isn't as much of an emphasis on the sensitivity part of self-knowing. Uh, at the beginning, self-knowing is 
are quite similar to a lot of what we learn in, in psychotherapy or just by being alive. But self-knowing goes much deeper or it goes to a different dimension. It's not that the uh, psycho, psychological level is trivial, it's essential because we trip over it all the time. But we'll go into that uh, later on. Um, when, let's say you start to do wholeheartedly vacuuming. I'm just going to stick with that one, but I really mean everything. Is this training to just be a well-adjusted person, more balanced, somebody who's neat? You start tidying up your room. Uh, your people say, oh, uh, old Larry is becoming a much more regular guy. It's nice. Finally, he grew up. You know, he's taking care of this, doing that, no, not uh, whining, not complaining about anything. Uh, or a happy worker. Like, like sometimes people have asked me, we could take this into industry in terms of efficiency of work. You could, and you probably will. Uh, and I'm not against it. It's just there's something a little bit more added on to it. And in some uh, traditions, what it's called is uh, the practice is part of um, the way of awakening. It's part of a way, capital W-A-Y. And the way in Dharma circles is when a person forms the intention to wake up. You could call it path. Uh, if you're doing something, understanding that, sure, on one level, it gets the carpet clean. At another level, it's stress-free. You're not suffering so much. But it can go even deeper than that, particularly when you understand that life is your practice and that you're wholeheartedly doing this because this is what your life is right now. It's not that vacuuming is uh, so extraordinary. It's that life is so extraordinary but only if you meet it, if you receive it, if you allow it to work in you. And so if you take it on and this place is set up, it's not just to, to uh, if you're cleaning, a, uh, cleaning the table here or, or vacuuming, to just get the job done and get on with more important things. It's to uh, uh, have respect uh, for the activity, which is another way of saying have respect for yourself. Because the, the, whatever you encounter, that's your life in that moment. And so I feel that this is, if we can even begin to learn this attitude a little bit, it very easily transfers back home when we, have to, when we leave here. And you begin to see this just life. And when we're here, it's wonderful. And when you can come here, you know, if you take to this, great. But when you're home, it's not like you have to, oh boy, I wish I was back at IMS. Uh, because it's very rich to be in the conditions that we find ourselves in. And of course, some of them are very unwanted. We'll get into that uh, next time. I hope enough has been said to at least launch us into uh, bringing our attention into uh, the fullness of what our life is here. We have a, a regular life here. We do most of the same things that we do at home. Here, the emphasis on sitting, formal, at home, not as much. But there's living going on here. We eat, we dress, we clean ourselves, and so forth. And there are people here. And we're reacting to people, even if we don't speak. We're not zombies. We know who's, who's here, don't you? Anyway, maybe not. <laughs> Could we have a moment of silence, please?
a footnote. So what I've been saying is, even if you have unwanted jobs, lowly jobs in world, from the point of view of worldly view, uh, can you see it as, a, as dharma practice? And um, I think all of us sitting up here have attempted to do that. Uh, Matthew did it in a very interesting way. There's a sect in Japan. Matthew was practicing in, in Japan. It's very Buddhist-oriented. And they were written up in tricycle uh, some years ago. And they go around, they march as a group, and clean public toilets. Uh, and apparently, originally, it was quite authentic. They used it as a spiritual practice to take on voluntarily, no pay, that activity that most people don't want to do. And they would have, you know, uh, cloth wrapped around their head and a big uh, 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 broom or uh, mop, and they would march along. Can you picture Matthew at 6'3"? And many Japanese are a lot smaller, marching along, uh, singing hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> it's off to the toilet we go. I know, I owe you a big time. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.